0: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, Rashad Ernesto Green takes us behind the scenes of his new drama, Premature. Set in a hot summer in Harlem, Green's film tells the story of 17 year old poet Ayana, who is drawn into a relationship with Isaiah, a young music producer who moves into the city just as Ayana is about to leave for college. In addition to Premature, Mr. Green's directorial credits include the feature film Gunhill Road an episode of the miniseries, Looking for Alaska, and episodes of the series, Grim, Supernatural, The Vampire Diaries, Being Mary Jane, The Quad, Vita, Luke Cage, Proven Innocent, and The Shy. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Green spoke with director Don Wilkinson about filming Premature. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
1: Hey, y'all.
2: Hi, everybody. Welcome. And thank you for such a beautiful film, Rashad. It was really beautiful. Um, I'm just curious what inspired you to approach this subject matter and this and this story.
1: So, um, thank you so much. Uh, the... Film started as a short film in 2008 that I wrote and directed when I was at NYU Graduate Film School um, about a young woman, she's fourteen year old, fourteen years old who gets pregnant in the Bronx and how she has to deal with that pregnancy within her family and community. And I cast Zora Howard as the lead in that film, and she was 14 years old at the time and uh, turned in a brilliant performance and. That film went on to HBO and did what it did. And over the last few years, we've been talking about collaborating again. And uh, this time we decided to write something together. And we got into the room in the final part of 2016 when she had a break from school, about a, a month winter recess, and asked ourselves what we felt was missing in current day black cinema and felt like there was an overabundance of films that dealt with black victimization, black fear, pain, suffering, and death. And we felt like we wanted to do something different with this film, that we wanted to contribute something to the other side of that equation, to black life and black love instead. And so we felt like we could call from our life experiences and our heartbreaks and the loves of our life and how we felt at that time in our life. and and make a love story. And so, and we did that, and when we were writing it, uh, themes from the short film began to creep into our process, the settings, characters, world, and we embraced them and just kind of put everything together.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about how the writing process and how that collaboration worked? Did you outline together? Did you write scenes together? Did you write different parts? How did it? How did it happen? Yeah, I mean, we we it
1: was kind of a you know very organic process. You know, we start off the morning with coffee, um, in Isaiah's apartment, which is my apartment, and um, you know, we just basically talk about our lives, things that we maybe uh, didn't mm-hmm. know about each other and our and our relationships, and we really dug deep, yeah. and. You know, kind of just jotted notes down about you know what I found interesting and and what we could explore and and then yeah we just started outlining together and uh, and then said okay you know at the end of this month we wanted a draft so we kind of
2: so you made a deadline we
1: made, yeah we exactly <laughs> important deadline exactly and it wasn't you know it wasn't a very good draft at the end of that month but at least we we knew we wanted you know 100 pages on you know uh, done by that time so we're like okay we've done enough talking now over these next couple of weeks we have to draft the thing and so you know I'll take this sequence you take that sequence you take this up you know and then we just we just did it like that and um like I said draft wasn't the greatest at the end of that month she went back to school i went to direct a couple of episodes of television but we spoke over the phone about you know what was missing in the script and where it could go, and we shared some ideas and and then whenever we could, we rolled up our sleeves and got back in and uh, did that over a period of two years.
2: I noticed um the the real New York City subway, and I just wondered if you had specific lo- locations in mind when you were writing or if that was something that happened much later when you were in pre-production and how that not just the choice of locations but um did you visualize in advance to some extent the look that you were going for when sh- when thinking about where the scenes would happen or was it a low budget approach where you kind of went in places that you had access to
1: i would say it was, it was probably both you know but you know definitely when writing we had an idea of where we wanted to place certain scenes and then, because of location issues or budget constraints, you know, we had to accept alternatives. So, because we wrote in my room, essentially, we wrote it to that space, mm-hmm. and and the streets outside, and the vestibule downstairs, and the staircase, blah blah blah. Um, so, we shot the film in my room with those records, which were records my father left to me, and with the park around the corner. Uh, That first date was supposed to end up in Coney Island, uh, but because of uh, location issues and the fact that it was going to be like loud music that we couldn't control, we weren't going to be able to uh, like the ocean, um, we said, okay, you know what? Uh, Instead of Coney Island at night, it's now, you know, the park around the corner at dusk. (laughs) Um, And so, (laughs) you know, and that was like, something that was, that was a decision that was made, you know, while we were shooting already. Um, and we had to, we had to be flexible and call those kind of audibles on the fly. And, but it worked itself out, you know, instead of the ocean, we had the river. Um, and there was a a scene after the Mexican restaurant where they had the altercation with the friends, um, there was a scene that's supposed to be exterior night on the street. And again, we were like up against the clock and we're running out of time. And I was like, well, we're not going to be able to spend an hour lighting the exterior night. So there was a second half of that scene where they were uh, dancing on the subway platform to the the conga drummer and said, okay, well, you know, they're going to have to have that argument down there as well, you know, because it's lit and um, we'll just, we'll just stick it down there and, you know, and then it it worked itself out again, you know, um, so we had to remain flexible and, and be able to pick up and run on the fly and I'm just glad we were able to do that and just keep, you know, just kept the story and the characters at the front of our mind, you know, so that whatever decisions we made were informed by character and story.
2: There's a lot of beautiful shots in the film. Um, I have a, cu- a couple questions about that, but one of them is, um, like for example, when she goes to get the pregnancy test and walks to the counter and then it goes out of focus. So beautiful. And when she's in, f- in bed with her friend and they're facing each other. So beautiful. Did, did you, can you talk about your collaboration with your director of photography? Do you, do you storyboard or take look, photographs or have visual inspiration?
1: This is the first time I was working with Laura Valadeo. She's a recent star at NYU, and I'm very, very happy that I was um, introduced to her. Um, my regular go-to DPs were all working in television, um, so they were unavailable, so I reached out to my old, um, my old NYU professors from grad school, and um, they gave me a couple of names, but one name uh, that was in common was Laura Valdeo? I looked at her reel and her website, and was very impressed by the work that I saw. And so we met uh, together in Harlem, and you know it was her dream to shoot on sixteen millimeter as well. And we, you know, we just started talking about our influences and movies that we like, what, what this could feel like, or, you know, what she felt the script felt like, and we were speaking the same language. So, um, you know, I threw a whole bunch of films her way that, uh, she hadn't seen. And she shared some films that I hadn't seen and, and she just, she really did her homework. You know, we, 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 she, she had a b- beautiful presentation and lookbook, um, basically breaking down some of the films that I had showed her. And, and we had stylistic, stylistic approach to, uh, when Ayana was with her friends versus when she was with, Isaiah and um we didn't storyboard, uh but we just talked about feel and and what color we felt certain scenes were, and you know what um maybe what films certain sequences reminded us of, or something like that um and we just took it from there um it was pretty organic when we were on set, and uh, you know we knew that because we didn't want to burn film that we needed to be a little bit more economical with the approach to shooting so you know wherever we could we try to conserve um the shots you know to, so any 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 scene that could be played in one we try to figure out a way to do that um And especially because we were also rushing against the Sundance deadline, Uh, we didn't want to give the editor uh, a tremendous amount of options to play with in the editing room. And so, yeah, you know, we just we try to we try to reduce, you know, the the amount of material and um, and shots.
2: So I I think the performances are really grounded and feel very real, and given that that you were shooting on film and had such a probably low shooting ratio, how is it, how did you um, perf- approach directing the actors and was there any rehearsal or w- how did you go about getting such great performances?
1: Well, I, w- I wanted a long rehearsal period, you know, I wanted, uh, you know, and then I was like, okay, we're not going to have a long rehearsal period, maybe we can have just a week. Um, and then, but... You know, as we got closer and closer to production, um, I decided to green light the film and I realized that I wasn't going to be able to pay actors for rehearsal period. I said, you know what, let's just have at least one day with our two leads, you know, with uh, Isaiah and Ayana together. Uh, but then, and that was the day before production started. Then the morning of that rehearsal day, I was like, oh, today's the Caribbean Day Parade out in Brooklyn. <laughs> I wondered about that.
2: I'm like, how did he get that?
1: <laughs> and I was like, that would be really nice production value if we went out there. You know, so um so we basically scrapped the only rehearsal day that we had in order to go out to um the Caribbean Day Parade. You know, I uh, made a few phone calls. We got the camera cart, uh the camera car out there. They loaded the film. We got the costumes. You know on the on our actors and and we drove out there and caught the very tail end of the parade and and Josh and Zora didn't know each other uh very well. We had like one reading before that that point, and I just said you know to go out there and be in love and and so that was basically. Their rehearsal was finding, you know, finding that that day as they were running through that parade, they were kissing and hugging and dancing and, and um, getting to know each other like sort of on the fly. And um, they were both game for it, and, and you know, we got into, you know, we got into the room the next day, and, and they were able to turn it on. And a lot of those intimacy see- intimate scenes were shot on day two. Um, I try to make this set as comfortable as I could for them, you know a closed set of course uh where i o- it was only myself and a script supervisor who had access to the monitor and um you know only the d p and the boom operator were in the room when those scenes were taking place um and we would you know, fly in the, the, the the costume, the costumer to, to cover them up as soon as the take was over and, or if I had to give direction. Um, they were very comfortable with each other from the start. You know, I was, it was me who was a little bit anxious and, um, I've known Zora for a very long time. So I kind of had this older brother thing going on for her. And so, you know, seeing her in, in certain scenes, I was like, oh no, it's like my little sister, you know, um, so, um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we all got, got used to it pretty quickly and, um, yeah, and then found our flow.
2: Uh, something that I think you did really well is, is, is the silence and the music, how it plays in the scenes and how you allow for scenes to not have music as well, can you talk a little bit about your collaboration with your composer and your approach to music? Given that Isaiah is also a music producer, and just your your own personal take on on how to how to do that well in a film.
1: Yeah, I have to give a you know a great shout out to the composers um, Patrick Cannell, I have not worked with before, and Stephen Swanson, is a dear friend of mine. Um, but my editor, especially, has a great ear for music and. He was very sparse with his temp track and said it should, you know, should sound like this. And we always knew that piano was something that we were leaning on because of Isaiah's, um, because, uh, you know, because he was, because he played piano. So we wanted that sort of as the foundation of the score. And Justin, just he placed, uh, Justin's the editor place the temp track in places and it just, it felt, felt very right. So when we were communicating to the composers that we wanted to feel like this and not to stray too far away from this specific feel and they didn't, you know, um, they gave, you know, they gave us uh, options that were very similar to the temp score that Justin had chosen and uh, very much worked. And then um, the poetry was also something that was not written into the, film uh, well, not written into the script. Um, it was something that we found in the editing process. And when there was one scene that we shot in particular where we were not prepared to hear any poetry. Um, it was a choice, I guess, because Zora is a spoken word artist. That's um, that's a, She has a, a background in spoken... And and so she was feeling, I think, very self-conscious about having Ayana be a poet or hearing uh, her poetry in the film. Um, And so in this one particular scene where he discovers her journal and her poetry and he says, you know, oh, wow, you know, you're lyrical. um, The scene was supposed to end where she begins the poem. This is like, um, but when we were shooting it, I said, can you just, you know, can you just say a few sentences, a few words? Um, And so Zora started to say a poem that she had remembered um, from a couple of years prior. Um, And she was like, this is not going to make the film, right? I was like, no, no, it's fine. But can you just just finish the poem? You know, just, you know. And so um, when I saw the first cut of the film, the first rough cut, uh, Justin had laid that sort of bastardized, memory of a poem over the sonogram uh, sequence and it just worked really well um, but it was kind of a unicorn because it was the only place in the film that we heard the poetry other than you know what we su- suppose are her lyrics for the um, for the song John Forbid Um, so it kind of s- stood out and we felt like ayana doesn't speak a lot and we needed a little bit more access to her own internal mindset and like what she was thinking and her interiority and so we felt like poetry could be a a good way to get there and we asked zora hey um this is what's going on in the scene, and can you just give us a couple lines? It has to do with uh, yearning, or you know, um, seeing something that you desire or love. And you know, uh, in, a, in a day or or two days, she would send you know four four or five verses uh, with a voice recorder over the iPhone, and that's what we used in the film.
2: Wow, it's really it's really beautiful how that how the voiceover is. Um, I wondered. If you had a like uh, a philosophy with regard to her choice, um, if there's any political kind of thoughts that you had around that, because I, there's a moment where Isaiah says to her, "Are you okay?" and it seemed like that could be, "Are you okay?" like with this, like consent, um, or it could be, "Are you okay?" like You've, have you taken birth control or something is this i did was that moment was i imagine, was that just my own, own interpretation of that moment that's before they have sex the first time he says are you okay was that um
1: oh do you mean like does that was that referring to whether they should have unprotected sex yeah
2: or? like um, i was just curious if you were trying to um make a point about the about that in any way because then they have that really interesting conversation later where she says it's her choice and he says he had a right to know. And I just felt like you raised that question in a really um, human, sort of empathetic way. Um, Were you trying to set it up with that conversation in that first sex scene? Or could you talk about just generally how you chose this sort of... um, you know, potentially inflammatory kind of uh, conflict between the two of them.
1: Yeah, I wasn't necessarily trying to land on one side of that debate or another. You know, I just know that they would feel differently about it and would be a great um, area of conflict. And so to give that to the characters, of course, um, people are going to think about it, talk about it, and say, you know, who's right and who's wrong and i hopefully they both have very valid points uh as far as the, their first sex scene is concerned that's not what he was um refer- he wasn't necessarily f- referring to um having unprotected sex with her i uh, it was more that she was coming on very strong and i think he was trying to slow things down um and take it at his at his own pace um because she was very anxious and so I think, you know, the, are you okay? is like, you know, was, uh, it, <laughs> you know, well, he was just like. To
2: slow it down and yeah, make sure to slow that it, it was, down yeah.
1: Yeah. But yeah, as far as that, that scene in the vestibule, you know, I know, you know, we're going to have people who feel very differently that, that she has, you know, very much the right to, to choose what to do with her body without consulting him. And then we're going to have folks that think, you know, that perhaps he should be consulted as well. Um, and like I said, I don't, Uh, have a stake in it but I just I want to make both characters right so you can make a choice for yourself
2: Is that something that you talked about with the cast too or they did you need to have that conversation as part of your direction?
1: The conversation about that specific choice? Yeah No I mean I think you know I think it's on the page you know as far as how he feels about it and, and you know, make the point in the scene that I mean, are 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 you were you ready to have a baby or did do you think that you actually wanted a child right now? And yeah. the answer is probably no. He's probably not ready and he's probably did not want to have a child. But he does feel robbed and feels violated that he didn't get to have a say in the matter or that you know the choice wasn't presented to him. Right. Um so you know we don't I, th- I think it was on the page enough that you know and josh is very very smart and um and zora is as well so um they were able to 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 feel very strongly about their position and so yeah we didn't need to to have too many like uh, theoretical discussion about it you know um and just that in the um in the performing of it I just kept on reminding them that they loved each other, you know that that this violation was because, um, you know, to to remind them that it it, it shouldn't feel um, like a complete rejection of her. It's more that he was that he was hurt that she didn't include him in this, and so um, that what I still wanted to feel during that argument was. Uh, that they were that they were torn, you know that there was still some inkling of love that was there
2: I love the ending, and I'm curious if you had a i mean like the shot where they're sitting and the train's going by, um, and she's holding her suitcase, and you wonder like what's going to happen next, which is like my favorite kind of ending <laughs> um, did you did you envision like is there what's what happens at the after the credits like what happens that she goes to school in your mind or or is it is it in, just doesn't need to be left open
1: i mean i you know we always get in trouble as uh directors by leaving these open-ended you know because then they're like well what happens and i'm like <laughs> i don't know actually you know I, I you know i want you to have an opinion about what happens i want you guys to argue at home about what happens um yeah, I, I I I hope personally that she doesn't throw her entire life away and just you know I'm you know I, I hope that she's able to make something of herself and but I don't know in terms of their relationship what that will be uh, you know whether he remains in her life whether she I I don't know um, I can tell you about that last shot though
2: <laughs> <laughs> great <laughs> tell me about that shot
1: you know so we were kicked off of that platform. yeah by NYPD uh (laughs) uh, yeah you know we thought we were permitted you know because because, uh you know certain subways and stuff like that so long as you don't have the camera on sticks like you're able to shoot but you know we I guess we didn't read the fine print for this particular one and uh, we were shooting up there for a while and and then the, the police became aware of us and came up there and said, you shut down, you know, and we didn't get that last close-up of Josh. So we had to return the next day and just steal it again. Um, but that shot with the train, I hadn't planned on that. You know, I uh, I had conceived that the credits would roll with them still waiting on the platform in a wide wider shot. And you would just, you know, see the credits while they're just sitting there waiting forever, you know. Um, but then in that two shot, the train went by. And while I was looking at it, I was like. That looks like the end of a film.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know when you see it.
1: <laughs> I was like, the film guys just kind of smiled on us, you know, And I was just like, I, I, I think that's. I think I just saw the last shot, you know. And so when we got in the editing room, we looked at the other, you know, the the other way, but it just, it just, just felt right, so.
2: Yeah, because you can see their emotions.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, they look at each other, the timing was right, and then that train comes, and you can still see them through the train. I was like, oh, it looks great, so, yeah.
2: So can you tell us, because um, I think we're um, getting towards the end, what maybe your high point was, in production and your highest point and your lowest point in in the process of making this film from, from the development right through to, you know, finishing the mix? It
1: was, a, it was quite the journey. Um, I had spent a number of years in television uh, directing episodes for five or six years before making this second feature. So, um, when when we got down to the wire and I decided to take a plunge and invest the money that i made in television into the second feature, I didn't necessarily understand like the stress that would come as a result of that decision.
2: Of, of producing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um
1: I ha- I did have uh help from a from a friend, Susan Kalechi Watson, and then an organization Cinerich and Kodak was uh, very generous and gave us a, a, a wonderful discount as well. Um, but I invested a large portion of my own savings uh, into the film, and so you know, you know what? If, if if I saw something wasn't being done right, or uh, the the budget was um, rising, it, it, it always made me sweat. So. Um, you know, it was, it was hard to just keep a director hat on when, you know, I knew things were going on, uh, you know, behind the camera. So as far as low points, I mean, I was sweating a lot of that production. It's not just because it was hot outside. Um, but there were high points because I mean, I love what I do. I love, 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 love getting performances out of actors that they didn't even know were there. And, um, you know, seeing real life on screen, like I just, that's what I lived to do, you know? So, you know, we had a lot, we had a lot of those moments where I just got to enjoy watching the performances gel and, and, and the actors feed off of each other and, create that authenticity on, on, on screen. I just, yeah, I love that.
2: Thank you, Rashad. You did an amazing job. It's a wonderful film.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to subscribe, rate and review. We'd love to hear your feedback and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.